Figures on both the left and the right have expressed concern about low fertility. These concerns and more general concerns about families continue to motivate public policy. Federal policymakers have proposed permanent child tax credit expansions, monthly cash benefits for families with children, paid family leave programs, universal preschool, and childcare subsidies like those contained in the initial Build Back Better legislation or the Biden administration's American Families Plan. On the political right, increasing U.S. fertility while supporting American families has become a more common theme undergirding policy proposals, and policymakers across the political spectrum increasingly support pro-family policies, irrespective of their fertility implications. Some analysts and policymakers are considering expensive or more expensive policies intended to raise birth rates and support families more broadly. But do those policies work? And should the government play a role in trying to reverse this trend? What policies can increase parent choice and make family life for parents with young children easier and more affordable? The three of us on this stage and our fourth contributor who is remote today have worked on these and related issues and we are excited to discuss them with you. For all of us, I think I can say for all of us, the issue of fertility and family policy is not merely a theoretical one. In fact, everyone contributing to the conversation is either a mom, will be one soon. Three of the four of us are uh, pregnant and all three trimesters are represented. I think that must be some type of record for a DC panel and definitely uh, wasn't planned. There's lots to say about each of our panelists, but in the interest of time, I will try to be brief, beginning with my co-author on the Freeing American Families report, Chelsea Follett. Chelsea is a policy analyst and managing editor of humanprogress.com, a project of the Cato Institute that seeks to educate the public on global improvements in well-being. In addition to a variety of other subjects, Chelsea has written in-depth about population control, women in markets, global inequality, and progress. Chelsea's remarks will be followed by Elizabeth Nolan Brown, senior editor at Reason, who we are very happy to have joining us today remotely as she is now outside the approved pregnancy travel window. Brown has covered a broad range of political and cultural topics in her writing with special emphasis on the politics, policy, and legal issues surrounding reproductive freedom and women's rights. Elizabeth recently spent considerable time researching fertility policy for the reason cover story, Storks Don't Take Orders from the State. And finally, Julie Gunlock will uh, be joining us to contribute on a variety of different issues and specific reforms. She directs the Independent Women's Network and IWF's Center for Progress and Innovation. Julie is a published author of multiple books. She writes regularly about parenting, innovation, food and nutrition, and she also hosts the Bespoke Parenting Hour. We will go in this sort of general order with Chelsea providing a little bit of a lay of the land, Elizabeth describing the outcomes of targeted fertility initiatives internationally. I will join in to provide an overview of some reforms to make family life easier and more affordable. And then Julie will outline some specific policies that can be undertaken to improve family lives, including highlighting some with momentum. 
We'll then move on to audience Q&A, so please submit your questions through the interface as you think of them, and we look forward to addressing those at the end of the presentations here. Going to Chelsea. Thank you, Vanessa, for that introduction. So first, some uh, broad background. I think it's always helpful to have historical perspective when thinking about these kinds of broad trends. So for the vast majority of human history, um, the world's population was more or less stable. It was growing, but very, very slowly. And that's not because people were having few children, but because of extremely high rates of premature death. Most, uh, many children did not live to adulthood. Many did not even live through their first year. And then suddenly everything changed and we saw a very dramatic rise in the population. With any large dramatic change, many people are going to react to that with worry. And one of the first people to articulate concerns about this rising population was a man named Thomas Malthus at the end of the 18th century when that change was just starting to take off and these concerns really became popular in the 1960s and 70s when we were experiencing exponential population growth and that trend was well underway. Many people were worried that the growing population would be unsustainable, that it would result in a decrease in resources and that we would end up running out of food and that it could cause some form of environmental catastrophe. The many policy initiatives that were then instituted to try to counter this dramatic change in population uh, sometimes led to very dark places. One of the more famous examples of policies meant to counteract population growth was China's one-child policy, since softened to a two-child policy, now a three-children policy. And so we know that panic can lead to some very poor policy decisions and even human rights abuses, which is important to keep in mind as we contemplate uh, population policies that deal with such personal issues as family size decisions. Now, what was the reason for the growth in population? The reason was because of a dramatic increase in the prosperity of the world. After industrialization, the unprecedented level of prosperity allowed humanity to fund sanitation product, uh, projects and medical advancements that made a huge difference in human lives and decreased mortality rates for every age group, but especially for children. Even as the population continued to reach new highs every year, poverty and hunger were reaching record lows, the exact opposite of what the population panic people had predicted. Another reason why their concerns were ultimately, fortunately, unfounded would be uh, the fertility transition. The population uh, eventually adjusted. One of the reasons for the fertility transition and the fall in birth rates that we saw was because as children, more and more children were reaching adulthood, many people realized that to have two children surviving, they didn't need to give birth six times and bury the majority of those children in a grave. They could just have the two children that they wanted and both children would survive to adulthood. And today, the global average fertility rate is 2.3. And two-thirds of the world population live in countries with below replacement 
fertility rates, the replacement fertility rate of 2.1 being the estimated rate needed to keep the population uh, stable. Because of these changes, demographers now predict that the world population will actually peak and start to decline in our lifetimes. And while we should take all these predictions with a big grain of salt, and remember that demographers don't have the best track record of uh, these predictions. In fact, the UN failed to anticipate just how quickly birth rates would fall. It does seem like if current trends continue, we will eventually see the population peak and start to decline, which will represent a large change. We will get to a point where there are more elderly people than children. And so today, many people are understandably concerned about this large change. And uh, whereas people used to be worried mostly about overpopulation, increasingly the concern that you hear is worries about depopulation or falling birth rates and population decline. These worries are especially common in countries where the birth rate is already below the replacement rates. And that group includes many countries that we may think of as having high birth rates, including India, Mexico, and Brazil. Today, many middle-income countries and almost all high-income countries are below the replacement rate. And in some countries, the population is actually already declining, including Japan, Italy, Portugal, Poland, Romania, and Greece. As a result of this, we are seeing many governments try to institute policies to combat this decline in fertility. By 2015, 55 countries had declared an explicit policy objective of raising birth rates. And yet, despite many different initiatives to try to alter this trend, there has never been a single case in the modern era of a wealthy country raising its birth rate back to the replacement level or above and sustaining it there after dipping below that threshold, although there are some precedents for temporary reversals. If we look at the sorts of policies that have been attempted, we see that the results are mixed at best. Here you can see a table uh, that I encourage you to review in detail by checking out that paper that Vanessa and I have authored, Freeing American Families. And here you can see that many countries that have attempted to raise their <coughs> fertility rate to far more modest objectives than to the replacement level. Every objective listed here is beneath the replacement, except for uh, Hungary, which was the most ambitious country here. Uh, every instance here, except for one, uh, failed to reach its fairly modest fertility target and maintain that rate. You can see that Belarus has two initiatives uh, listed. They were able to initially meet their goal with that first initiative with a goal of 1.5. Fertility, but then that was followed by a large downturn and their subsequent <coughs> initiative ultimately failed. While these policies seem to have limited effectiveness and the results are mixed at best, they have come at a very high cost. To put that into perspective, one estimate suggests that it would cost $250 billion in annual spending, which is between seven and eight times the amount of childcare spending that the Biden administration proposed in Build Back Better, just to raise the total fertility rate in the United States by 0.2 extra children per woman 
which still wouldn't bring us anywhere close to the replacement rate. I do think that concerns about dramatic population changes are understandable. After all, if free people are the ultimate resource, the source of our societal prosperity, then uh, it makes sense to be concerned about any sorts of policies that may make things harder for families. But the policies that have been attempted to date have come at a very high cost, to summarize, and we think that a different approach would be better to help families and possibly remove artificial barriers to family life and fertility. But before Vanessa gets into those, first over to Elizabeth for more on some of the policy responses that people have attempted to date to deal with these issues of uh, population and fertility changes. Hi, um, thank you guys for having me here. I am going to talk a little bit about specific international fertility initiatives and their outcomes. Probably the best, although kind of depressing place to start is Singapore. In 2001, Singapore started giving people cash bonuses for having kids, and it's been progressively bumping up those payments ever since. In 2004, this meant $3,000 for the birth of a first child and increasing payments for each kid thereafter. By 2014, this was raised to $8,000 for a first or second child and $10,000 for every kid after that. And last year, it raised these rates to $11,000 and $13,000, respectively. The country has also tried offering tax rebates for parents, guaranteeing 16 weeks of government-paid maternity leave for married mothers, giving households subsidies to people with kids, matching child development account savings up to thousands of dollars, and all sorts of other schemes. None of it has stopped Singapore's fertility rate from plunging. In 1990, this rate was 1.83. In 2010, it hit 1.15. And last year, it was 1.05. Another country that has done a lot to try and boost fertility rates is South Korea. Parents of babies up to one year old get a monthly allowance, which was raised this year from 300,000 won to 700,000 won, or about $230 a month to $540 a month. <clears throat> South Korea's president said last fall that his country has spent more than 200 billion subsidizing childcare and parental leave over the past 16 years, a period during which South Korea's fertility rate fell from 1.1 to 0.78 now making it the lowest in the world. On a sort of common sense level, this makes sense because, you know, $8,000 or $10,000, while a good chunk of money, raising a child costs a lot more than that in the long run. It's also a lifetime commitment. If you absolutely don't want children or you don't want more children, it would be kind of weird to upend your life for decades for a sum like that. It's really a kind of spectacular example of government hubris to think that things like this will work in the first place. Now, will programs like these make life easier for people who do choose to become parents? Sure. Might they help some women stay in the workforce rather than drop out to take care of kids? Yeah. But those are very different goals than encouraging more people to have more kids. The kinds of policies we're talking about in Singapore and South Korea are explicitly intended to raise birth rates. But there are other sorts of family-friendly policies that aren't quite so narrowly tailored. Things like mandating that businesses offer substantial parental leave or providing government-subsidized daycare and preschool. And it's these kind of policies that many on the American left want to enact. And lately, they've been joined by many on the American right, who also see them as ways to get people to have more babies. What I found really interesting when researching this subject was how paltry the fertility rate returns are for any of these types of social welfare spending. 
Japan has spent massively on family policies like these. Between 1990 and 2015, it expanded childcare subsidies, paid family leave policies, parental tax credits, and more. Meanwhile, its fertility rate went from 1.5 in 1990 to 1.3 in the early 2000s. It rebounded slightly in the mid-2010s, but it's been falling again, and in recent years, it hit 1.2 in 2022. It's always possible when looking at things like these that, that, you know, in one country, some sort of unique cultural constraints are throwing a wrench in otherwise good plans. But researchers have looked at programs like these across a lot of countries and time periods and not found significant boosts. In a recent paper called The Causes and Consequences of Declining U.S. Fertility, Wellesley College economist Philip Levine and University of Maryland economist Melissa Kearney note that research on pronatalist policies designed to facilitate work and childbearing is mixed, but generally does not find evidence of sizable fertility effects. For example, policy reforms in Norway in the 80s and 90s that substantially expanded paid maternity leave had no discernible effect on fertility rates. The lengthening of paid parental leave in Sweden led many women to have their subsequent child before the end of the first parental leave, and that made a temporary baby boom, but that was subsequently offset by a baby bust after that. And that's a common finding also. Um, research, you know, on, on, uh, that's happened in Quebec, Spain, Belarus, Poland, and Alaska, just to name a few different places, have shown that pronatalist policies of all sorts will sometimes succeed in boosting birth rates for a short time period, but not long term, which suggests they're simply changing the timing of people's births rather than the total number of births. Other research has shown that fertility rates falling despite no changes, either expansions or contractions in family policies. A 2021 paper published in Population and Development Review found that since 2010, total fertility rates have declined throughout the Nordic countries, despite little changes in family policies in any of these places. And all over Western Europe, in places with all sorts of expanded social welfare programs and benefits, you know, um, subsidized healthcare, subsidized childcare, things like that, we actually see lower fertility rates than those in the U.S. So it suggests that this sort of social welfare spending is not the panacea that many um, in the U.S. want it to be or, or suggest that it might be. Now, one pushback I get here is that these programs are good independent of whether they raise fertility rates, that they help mothers stay in the workforce, they help encourage a pro-family culture. Whether these are aims of appropriate aims of government, and I tend to think that they're not, uh, and whether these policies help accomplish them is an entirely different subject. My point is that the idea that they will help encourage a big baby boom has not panned out in countries where it's been tried all around the world. Uh, another pushback I tend to get here is that some countries, like in a number of Eastern European countries, we've seen slight fertility rate boosts in conjunction with the implementation of pronatalist policies. But a lot of these have occurred in countries with weird circumstances, such as being formerly communist countries. And these extremely low birth rates came about um, during periods of extreme economic and political turmoil. And then the recent rises in fertility rates were associated with periods of relative economic and political stability. So I don't think you can necessarily take from this that baby boosting policies per se are responsible. And it's also worth noting that many of these countries still fall below replacement level fertility. A lot of people like to point to Hungary, which has done a lot to encourage babies, including tax exemptions for women who have at least four kids, nationalizing IVF clinics, giving loans to young couples that won't need to be paid back if they have at least three kids. Hungary is spending around 5% of its GDP on these policies uh, in 2020. The country's fertility rate, though, is still lower 
than in the United States. Ours was 1.66 last year. Hungary's was 1.53. And it's down, that's down in Hungary, from 2.4 in 1975 and 1.9 in 1991. It is, however, up from 1.2 in 2011. But again, it's not clear how much of this is really attributable to pronatalist policies. For one thing, you had some of the country's major declines before occurring, again, in conjunction with much wider cultural changes and economic downturns. And then you had the early 2010s rise occur in conjunction with some economic recovery. We've also seen Hungary's most aggressive pronatalist pushes occurring in the past five years or so, but the main fertility rate rise took place between 2011 and 2016. In 2016, the fertility rate had gotten back up from 1.2 to 1.5, and it was still 1.5 last year. So maybe we're gonna see some of these more recent policies pay off in the coming years, but at this point, it's not clear that Hungary is the outlier pronatalist success story that a lot of people are pretending that it is. Uh, since I have a, a little bit of time left, one last thing I wanna to touch on here is that even though that there's even some data challenging the idea that the increase in working women is the main cause of lower fertility and that in turn enabling more mothers to stay at home with their kids could reverse the trend. Um, yes, the percentage of working women in the U.S. climbed from around 38% in 1960 to over 50% in 1980, while the fertility rate fell during this period from 3.7 to 1.8. So case closed, right? But as more American women went to work in the 80s and 90s, the female work participation rate going all the way up to 60% by 2000, the fertility rate actually rebounded uh, quite a bit during this period, reaching 2.1 again in 2000, instead of plummeting further. And then as female work workforce participation here started falling again this century, going down about four percentage points by 2019, fertility rates actually fell dramatically along with it. Around the world too, the link between more working women and fewer women having babies isn't so straightforward. There was this 2000 paper in the Annual Review of Sociology that looked at uh, fertility rates in 21 industrialized countries from 1965 through 1996, a time during which labor, female labor force participation rose in all of these countries. But the magnitude of this rise in each country did not match neatly to the size of the fertility dips. Den Denmark and Iceland had the highest labor force participation rates for women, 74.1 and 80% respectively by 1996, yet they also maintained higher fertility rates, 1.8 and 2, than a lot of the other countries that they were looking at. Workforce participation remained relatively low in countries like Greece and Italy and Spain, yet these countries had the lowest fertility rates. And Ireland's female workforce rate was also on the lower end, yet it saw the steepest fertility rate drop from 4 down to 1.9. So the bottom line here, when you look at, you know, all these different kinds of policies tried around the world, all these different sort of explanations around the world, you can, you know, in different cultures, different sort of economies, you just find that a lot of what sounds like common sense solutions to these things doesn't actually work at raising fertility rates in practice. Well, thank you, first of all. Thanks so much, Elizabeth, for that um, very information-rich presentation. Uh, depending on your perspective, it may be that you're feeling a little bit of doom and gloom at this point um, in the conversation, and that's okay. Um, some of the last presentations, you know, they uh, referred to, described some of these international fertility initiatives and found, well, significant costs and disappointing results. 
Um, so we have suggested a different path, a little bit different route in our Freeing American Families report. report. We think that it is worth considering, first, some less costly reforms that we know will improve family life. And we think that this is a good starting point for policymakers interested in doing things to support family and maybe even boost fertility as well. In some places, we actually we highlight evidence that these reforms could increase births. These reforms have the advantage of reducing the obstacles that parents face in a variety of different ways, not solely financial, um, but we approach it from a variety of different angles, and I'll get into that a little bit more here. I think it's also worth saying that we think that reforming government policies that make it more difficult to have and raise children it's a very good place to start for a pro-family agenda, even irrespective of any fertility implications. And because these reforms make family life easier and they make family life more affordable, they stand on their own merits as well. We've broken these policies in the Freeing American Families study into three kind of categories. And although we certainly don't have time for a full exploration of these policies today, I hope to provide a little bit of an overview and a few specific examples as well. The first is reforms that reduce the price of goods and services that families require and make balancing work and family obligations easier. Um, in our study, we talk about housing policies, childcare, food, formula, even education, because of its tie to housing policy, uh, it's an affordability issue as well. And we also discuss flexible work policies that can make balancing work and family obligations easier. Childcare reform, I think, is a very good example of something that hits on a number of objectives here. Uh, Childcare reform could be used to both reduce the price of a service that families, many families, not all, require, and also, of course, make family and work obligations uh, easier to combine. When you have consistent childcare, it's just easier to get your work done and get home to your family and spend time with them. Childcare is also something that is an issue getting quite a bit of attention right now as pandemic spending on childcare ends. Unfortunately, in the past, um, policymakers have really been focused on Band-Aid policies in this area, things that will, uh, you know, boost the amount of money or resources that families have or kind of Band-Aids to uh, infuse more resources and money into the child care sector, as happened during the pandemic. But they're not, they haven't been as interested in the underlying cost drivers and what is causing these increases in childcare prices. Instead, policymakers should reform regulations that uh, reduce the supply of care. And we provide a variety of ways to do that in the report. At the local level, there are staff to child ratios that limit access to care, maximum group sizes, occupational licensing for childcare providers, zoning restrictions that ban or limit home-based care, and immigration restrictions as well. Um, from the immigration side of things, we have a variety of policies in there, but one that's maybe worth mentioning is the au pair program, which allows for uh, you know, young people from countries across the world 
to come and engage in cultural exchange with American families, help care for them, help care for their children. Um, this is a program which has been very useful to some families. Unfortunately, it's limited in a variety of different ways. Uh, the, there are age limitations, and I think more importantly, there are limitations on the duration uh, that these au pairs can actually stay. Uh, the limit is one year with the opportunity to extend for an additional year at most. So two years isn't very long in a young child's life, um, and so we would suggest actually reforming this policy to make it easier for, for au pairs to stay for up to five years. That's just an example of one reform here. But I think the thing that's very positive in the childcare arena is that even small regulatory reforms can make a real difference on the price of care. One study finds that increasing the child staff ratio by just one child can reduce the cost of care by nine to 20%. Um, I wanna move on to sort of a second category of reforms, reforms that affect childbirth and reproductive health. I think that this is an area that hasn't received a lot of attention, particularly from a fertility perspective. Uh, although C-sections or cesarean sections can be life-saving medical procedures, many women report being pressured into C-sections when they're not medically necessary. And in fact, in the US, we have very high C-section rates, um, uh, far beyond what's actually recommended. And we know that having a negative birth experience tends to reduce the number of children that women desire, not really surprisingly. Many states have laws that restrict or ban VBACs, which are vaginal births after cesarean, in non-hospital settings. So these limit access to uh, cesarean section alternatives. And certificate of need laws also limit access to care in much the same way uh, by limiting access to providers and institutions that would provide these alternative services. Finally, we discuss reforms that reduce the time cost of parenting. There's a lot of focus on financial resources and financial limitations that parents have, but just as importantly, any parent knows that the time costs of parenting are incredibly important um, and that they can be quite limiting as well. And in fact, the time costs of parenting have been rising over time in a significant way. Now, it's one thing if parents want to spend increasing amounts of time parenting. Of course, that should be allowed. Uh, nothing should get in the way of that. But it's another thing if this is required or expected by government policy and not something that parents would otherwise choose and not something that's clearly beneficial from a parenting perspective or for their child's growth. So we suggest enacting reasonable independence laws, reforming home supervision laws. Those are things that would reduce the time cost of parenting while also reducing the stress and anxiety related to parenting and would provide some growth opportunities for school-age kids. Of course, this is all age-appropriate reforms. Um, sort of related from a safety perspective, there are overly burdensome car seat requirements with little associated safety benefit, which should also be considered. And there's some evidence that uh, reconsidering these could make a big impact from a fertility perspective. 
I should say that all of the reforms that we cover in freeing American families are free. They do not require the development of new programs or allocation of new spending. They also respect the diverse preferences and types of families, and they are liberty-enhancing as well. So from that perspective, they should appeal to policymakers of a wide variety of stripes. And I think I'll leave the overview there, and I think Julie's going to get into a little bit more detail. Thank you, Vanessa. Um, during your intro, Vanessa, you mentioned three of the four panelists are pregnant. <laughs> I am not. I have three teenagers, three teenage boys, so uh, I deserve everybody's sympathy on this panel. And it smells so nice in here. Um, anyway, so look, I'm a parent of, I mentioned I'm a parent of three boys, and, um, and safety is important to parents. That is, that is nothing um, new. It's very natural to feel worried about your parents. But we've entered um, a state, I would say, of unreasonableness, unreasonable fear. And this often leads, as Vanessa mentioned, to burdensome and excessive regulations and bans and restrictions and taxes. Um, but more importantly, and I want to talk a little bit about the culture of parenting here today, um, it makes parenting joyless um, and stressful. If you're scared all the time um, about everything, um, it, it, it makes parenting tougher. Um, just, just from a mental standpoint. Um, and it creates a disincentive to have kids or a disincentive to have multiple kids. Um, women in particular um, have, starting, uh, have started doing, and I, this isn't anything new, but I've seen sort of it accelerate over the last decade is this what I call, and I'm not the only one to say this, um, but the mothering harder, right? Do it better, be perfect. Um, and Vanessa, I think you mentioned the statistics about how women have doubled their weekly time spent with their children since 1985. This particularly resonated with me because I was born in the 70s, and I have very clear memories of my mother opening the door. She probably had a tab, you know, probably Donahue was on in the background or One Life to Live or some soap, and she was saying, get out of the house. Go, I don't want to see you for six hours, right? And so my sister and I would you know, ride our bikes to the railroad or, or down to the railroad tracks. I'm amazed we didn't get hit by a train or, um, or you know, go to the tennis, whatever. We met our friends. It was fun. This was a very 80s kind of upbringing. That is sort of non-existent today and non-existent today. And I'll talk a little bit about the tracking of children. Um, but another interesting data point that I found in the report was that parents, um, the perception of parents being more involved in kids' lives has also increased. And that's important because it's, it's sort of suggesting that this is the norm. You should track your kids. You should be involved. You should hover. Um, and I think culturally, that says a lot. I see a lot of parallels um, in this sort of mother-harder, parent-harder movement with things like breastfeeding. When I gave birth in 2007, tons of pressure. And that hasn't abated so much. I mean, there's still a lot of pressure to breastfeed. I see a lot of that pressure recently in homeschooling. The idea that, and I'm, I did homeschool. I homeschooled my, my kid um, through COVID. I'm a big believer in homeschool. I think some of the best and brightest kids are homeschooled. Um, but I do see an, a pressure suddenly that, you know, if you really want to be the perfect parents, you'll homeschool your kids. 
Um, I see it in homesteading, the ho sort of homesteading movement. You know, we're gonna get our 40 acres and our kids will never eat a Dorito. We'll grow all our own food and they'll never, we'll never go to the grocery store, um, which ties to sort of this orthodoxy about food and products in the home and sort of modern technology, for instance, modern agriculture being bad. Um, so as parents have gotten more involved, as they've gotten more concerned, um, we don't see sort of a rise in the happiness of children. In fact, I think we all know um, that kids are, are not doing great. Um, we see some great uh, writing on this. Um, Jonathan Haidt, The Coddling of the American Mind. One of my favorite references is Julie Lifeclot Hames, who several years ago uh, wrote a book called How to Raise an Adult, and where she talks about in her 18 years um, as a dean of admissions at a university, she sort of saw the decline of children um, unable to cope with being independent adults uh, once they went to college. Um, and of course, Lenora Skenazy, who is the founder of the Free Range Kids Movement, um, she talks a lot about this issue and how parents have gotten to the point where they avoid all risks. You know, there could be a white van around the corner, there could be a falling chandelier um, or a falling piano. You can tell she, she lives in New York. But this is the, the state of parenting today, and it makes parents vulnerable to activists and politicians and regulators who want to take advantage of this fear and push public policy that I mentioned earlier makes it harder to parent. And we've, we've seen some really great examples of that um, recently. And using children, using like the fear of what will happen to children as sort of the mechanism to, to push these policies. Uh, it might seem like a stretch, but that, that's exactly what happened with the gas stove issue just a couple months ago. You know, the left and, and many sort of Democrat members of the House were like, oh, stop with the panic and keep your, your gas stove. This isn't a real issue, except that two very powerful members of the House and Senate, Cory Booker and Don Beyer, they wrote a, a, a letter to the Consumer Product Safety Commission. And to tie this back to kids, it was based on a study that was done that said that gas stoves harm children. It gives them asthma and other respiratory issues. That was incredibly compelling to people. Oh my gosh, you know, we've got a gas stove in our home. Is it hurting our child? So again, using gas stoves um, or using children to really put fear about this very popular and common household item. Um, car seats. Vanessa, you mentioned car seats, and I just want to expand on that a little bit because this is kind of fascinating. Of course, nobody's against car seats. We're all pro car seats. But when you look at how the sort of evolution of car seats, you know, I ask my mom and, and uh, you know, she held me on the way home from the hospital, not suggesting we return to that, but the state has continued to make it more and more difficult. Car seats, the, the buying of them, the using of them more and more difficult. In some states, the mandatory age, I mean, I think in California, what is it, 18? I'm kidding, it's not, <laughs> but it, they, they, give them a year, it might be. It's like seven or eight, maybe nine? I think it's eight, and, yeah. um, and that's really tough, and I'll tell you why. You know, I have a minivan, I now have an SUV, but for people who have a Honda Civic, or a smaller, a non, almost all non-SUVs cannot handle more than two, two um, car seats. Car seats are also huge now, okay? And Again, you have to take a long, it's a long time until you can get them into a booster. And some of these small cars, you can't fit two car seats and a booster. So what happens? You have people who put their kids in the car in, in 
without a car seat and without a booster. So in an effort to make things safer, you've actually made things less safe. Um, so this is a, a real problem. And, and the other problem is, is that we fine parents, you know, up to $250 for these violations of car seats without recognizing that many of them are really struggling. Are they not supposed to go to the grocery store? Or maybe they should leave their kids home and go to the grocery store, which there again is another violation of these sort of the rules today which suggest we should hover and never take our eyes off our kids. Um, I want to give just one other um, example, and that's more of the giving kids more freedom. Before 2012, the only people that we tracked were prisoners on, on work release, right? We gave them an ankle bracelet and they went to halfway house. Now, pretty much every kid is tracked. You either have these sort of Apple trackers or they have watches, they have a bunch of apps on phones. Um, and parents are really able to see their kids. This affords kids no real freedom or independence, which is important. Kids are never, again, never alone, never independent, and this sort of impacts them and their ability to sort of test their own, their own limits and figure out what they can and cannot do. Um, and again, going back to the perception issue, that data point, parents are expected to keep an eyeball on their kids at all times. Uh, your report was really interesting in that it talked about that in, in 2020, there are 2.1 million investigations into children mal child maltre maltreatment. Those were unsubstantiated, okay? So it means someone went there, they looked into it, nothing was found. But I think we have to consider how that feels to a parent to be investigated, to be investigated by, C um, by child safety officers and by the police. It has an incredibly dampening um, effect on parents. Um, there was a disparity, though, in, in, in who exactly is investigated. According to the American Journal of Public Health, they found that 37% of all children by the age of 18 will experience some sort of meeting or visit by CPS, which is a pretty astonishing number. But it is higher for African-American children who experience it at 53%. Now we could say, well, it's just racism, right? Or if CPS is racist, police are racist, like they just investigate African-American families more. But instead we should examine something like the car seat situation, where people, there are single black mothers who cannot afford a, a, a bigger car or cannot afford another car seat, and so they're being reported for things when they're trying to survive. And there's a great example of this, and um, Lenore Skenazy, who I've mentioned before, she did a report on this years ago, and she's great. Reason Magazine is so great about tracking these examples, and Lenore is, you know, with she's sort of the founder of the Free Range Kids Movement, and she tracks these examples really well. And the story of Deborah Harrell, I think, is a, a perfect example of this. She was a, a mom who was a manager at a McDonald's, and her daughter was home for summer. And she scrounged up enough money to get a laptop for her daughter so she could sit in the back of the restaurant. They were burglarized, the laptop was taken, and Deborah had a choice. She could let her daughter sit there all day in a McDonald's under fluorescent lights, eating french fries, but there was a park just adjacent to the McDonald's. So she let her daughter go to that park. She gave her a cell phone, said if there's anything wrong, and it really wasn't far. It wasn't far, the park to the McDonald's. She said, if anything's wrong, call me. This little girl was nine years old, yes, young, but she was very mature and she was able to handle herself. She was familiar with the area. 
Parents there who were watching their kids, who didn't have to work at McDonald's, reported her to the police. She was arrested. Her daughter was put into state care for a week. It was terribly embarrassing. Lenore did reporting on this. John Stossel did some follow-ups. And I mean, it has sort of a happy ending. She, you know, was sort of, they apologized and she, she got her reputation back and, and she didn't lose her job. But it was a terrible story. And here is a mom who's trying to do her best and brings her daughter to a park and is then penalized for that. So one thing I think from a government standpoint, we need to stop criminalizing very reasonable parent decisions. And we also need to stop criminalizing poverty. Um, there are multiple situations like I often hear, well, this doesn't happen very often. It actually does happen a lot. And parents who, whether they leave their child in a car on mistake or if they, there's an accident because they weren't home and they had another child watching their child, it is really horrible um, that there's very little sympathy for these parents who are trying to do their best to provide for their families um, and making decisions that years ago would have been reasonable. So on to solutions, eight states have passed the reasonable childhood independence bills. I mentioned Deborah ha Harrell earlier, but parents are also um, you know, being visited by the police for letting their kids play in the front yard, for letting their kids walk to a park, for letting their kids walk to school. Pretty insane stuff, but in many cases, police are investing, CPS is then called. So this bill will decriminalize those very reasonable behaviors it will allow children to walk to school and play outside, to walk, um, uh, to, walk to, to nearby parks, um, and to briefly stay in a car in certain circumstances. For instance, when it's 60 degrees out and you roll down all the windows and you're just running in for a quick thing. These are important measures, I think, that will make parenting more attractive, that will make people want to parent. Again, this is eight states, but these are models for other states, and I certainly hope other states pass these bills. Thank you. Well, thank you, Julie. Um, that, was, that was excellent. I think we're gonna move on now to Q&A. So at this point anyways, I can see Elizabeth on my screen. So Elizabeth, if you want to say anything, pop in, just give me a wave. I'll try to pay attention. And I will also uh, shout a few questions out as well, just to make sure that you're well included in the conversation. So we've been getting some great questions online here. Um, so I'll just hop right in. Um, let's see. One question, this is from Anonymous. Why do you want to pressure people to do something they apparently don't want to do? If people aren't having children, it's by choice. Women used to have a lot of children because they didn't have ways to avoid pregnancy not necessarily because they wanted them. I think probably we've all got thoughts on that, but um, who wants to take it? Maybe we pop over to Elizabeth. I think that she'll probably have some ideas. Um, I, yeah, I, I don't know how anyone got the impression that we necessarily want to force people to have children that we don't want to <laughs> from these talks, because I think that that's what we've all been talking about is, you know, how government, you know, sort of ham-fisted government attempts to sort of make people you know, change their individual choices just don't work because even though people think it's about, maybe it's about economics, maybe it's about practicality of childcare and things like this, it actually is a lot about individual choice. I mean, when you, when you look at surveys that ask people why they don't have children or why they don't have more children, the number one reason given is often because they don't want to. So I think, you know, I think we should celebrate the fact that we have made it possible both through, you know, technological things and, you know, healthcare changes and just loosening of different social mores that that people who, you know, don't want to have children don't don't feel like they have to as much nowadays. And also the converse of that is that um, the, the children that are being had 
are much more wanted than ever before and um you know being born into much more stable and uh you know healthy homes i think a lot of times these days so i think these are definitely things to celebrate um and i don't think that you know i i certainly wasn't saying that we should be trying to force everyone to have kids but it is an issue this this issue of of population decline associated with declining fertility rates. So I think it is important to just also not ignore the subject. We should be talking about it. And, and as, you know, Vanessa and Chelsea do with their paper or just, you know, other, other people have talked about, as I wrote about in my reason feature, think about other ways to deal with problems that are, that we are associating with low fertility rates, as opposed to just saying, okay, let's try and make people have more babies. You yeah. want to jump in, Chelsea? Absolutely. I think um, I, I also am a little confused how someone could get that impression. Uh, something that I tried to get across in my presentation is that past forays into population policy by governments have had some very devastating results. And I think that when we're dealing with this topic, we want to be very careful and make sure that any policies implemented are freedom-based and have respect for human dignity. Otherwise, this can go to very dark places. So I understand why this person is concerned. And like Elizabeth, I agree at the same time that uh, with any big change in population, you want to be aware of it. You want to consider possible challenges. But a better way to address this rather than some dystopian scenario where the government says everyone has to have some minimum number of children, I think that would be horrific. Uh, what we want to do is remove any artificial obstacles or barriers that the government is putting in place that is making things harder for families, in some cases maybe frustrating fertility aspirations, and just approach this that way. And those policies, by making the world freer and making costs go down, making life easier, are also worth pursuing regardless of their impact on fertility. If you're not worried about these changes at all, I still think these policies are worth pursuing. I, I'll just be very quick. I just yeah. think that it is worth examining how our culture approaches parenting. Mm -hmm. And if you are on Instagram or if you are looking at mommy blogs or celebrity bloggers, they act like, like parenting is the hardest thing in the world. There are some government policies that make it more difficult, and there certainly are cultural things like parent mommy harder and never take your eyeballs off your kid or their, a piano will fall on them. I mean, this makes it joyless, and I think it is worth examining our culture and how that is supported by government programs, which create disincentives. So, you know, I, I think there are a lot of people that are on the fence about having kids, and then they listen to these voices, or they see it culturally, and they go, no way. And why would they, right, if, if you're presented with this idea that it's incredibly difficult, and then you're going to mess up your kid. You're going to yeah. poison them, you're going to delay them, you're going to do a bunch of stuff, and there's too much of that messaging out there. Yeah, no, I agree with that, and I definitely recall hearing only sort of the negatives, yeah. actually, since probably college days for me. Right. So. Um, you rarely hear about the positives of parenting or having children or how it might be, you know, rewarding in various ways. You hear about all the hard stuff. So I think that probably does change the way that people think about it. And that's important, too. Um, so we have a question from Daniel Hess. He says, I would say that the dominant factor in fertility is culture much more than policy. Do you have ideas within the realm of culture that can raise fertility? Now, I think, you know, Julie has addressed this to a large degree. 
Um, are there other are there other policies out there or other changes, not even policies, that we think could be important? Well, I think an awareness and exposing that politicians often use really bad studies to push, you know, the gas stove issue that I brought up. Um, you know, that study was was done by an anti-natural gas organization. It was a, it was a purely an environmental activist organization that produced the study. We see this all the time, right? You see this with BPA, you see this with canned goods, you see this with everything. You're gonna poison your kid in a variety of ways because this study says, you know, this very bad study says you're going to do that. And I think the best way, because, you know, we can't ever stop that happening, right? But is exposing it and trying to tell parents, like, be a little skeptical of what you're hearing, what you're seeing out there. Um, it's likely these things aren't as dangerous as they're being reported, or there's a reason, there's an objective, there's a policy objective or a political objective behind them. Mm -hmm. So for me, I think it's just exposing them as much as possible. Mm -hmm. Yeah, more education. I definitely think we didn't dive deeply into culture in our report, but I definitely think that it is meaningful for sure. I mean, if we look at, we do highlight in our report that uh, Israel is an, a bit of an outlier in that both religious and secular Israelis have, have above replacement level fertility, which is interesting. So why does that happen? Um, I'm not sure that we can point to any particular economic policy or other government policy for that. Um, what I've heard speaking with a friend that's Israeli is that there's actually cultural pressure to have children and people ask you, you know, if you have one or two, when is the next one coming? And you sort of get <laughs> asked these, what we would consider probably a little bit intrusive questions. Um, but, you know, there's an expectation culturally uh, that families will be larger. And so I think that probably is meaningful and somewhere to, to delve into in the future, don't you think, Chelsea? Absolutely. Another theory I've heard related to Israel's high, even secular fertility rate um, put forward by AEI's Nicholas Eberstadt is this idea that they have a lot of optimism about their future and maybe that uh, has some effect on whether or how many children people want to have. If you have a sort of unrealistic declensionist narrative and you believe everything is getting worse, the world is falling yeah. apart, uh, and you've got a very negative view of the future, why would you want to bring a well, child into you see the world? This. You see this with climate activists yeah. who say, who actually declare, I am not having children. Mm -hmm. e Eco-anxiety, yes. that's a yes. big factor that uh, I think it's a third of young people in at least one recent survey cited as one of the yeah. reasons that they are uh, not going to have as many children as they say they want. And so uh, having a more solutions-oriented approach to environmental issues and to other problems that humanity faces could even affect birth rates, perhaps. But having a certainly uh, a counter to unrealistic pessimism, I think would have a bunch of positive effects. It could lower rates of anxiety and unneeded depression. So uh, visit humanprogress.org. Yeah, I, I was about to say. Um, okay, we have another question. This is anonymous. Please comment on the population effect in the U.S. of the influx of millions of of uh, migrants. Um, I think this person is interested in illegal. And also, but also let's expand this out to otherwise as well, uh, legal and illegal immigrants. The 
birth rate for immigrant Hispanic women is probably higher than Caucasian US women is the comment. Well, sure, I'm, I'm Latina, so I can take that, I guess. Um, <laughs> Uh, it is true that one of the reasons that the U.S. has a higher fertility rate than Europe is though, although I think it's now um, come down, uh, initially at least there was a higher uh, birth rate among some immigrant communities. And we talk a little bit in our paper about some of the possible fertility effects on the native-born population of immigration. And there is some evidence that uh, an increase in low-skilled immigration brings down the cost of childcare, which may have actually positive uh, fertility effects for uh, high-income or highly educated native-born women who are the most likely to use childcare because they're in the workforce. Now, there's also the possibility that by increasing their workforce attachment, it could uh, lower their lifetime fertility some people have posited so the relationship is not entirely clear but it does seem like there is some evidence to suggest that it could uh, increased immigration could actually help native birth rates as well I think I would also just say that um, immigration generally it's an offsetting factor right to these fertility declines so for countries that embrace immigration um, this can be a way to avoid sort of a declining uh, workforce and declining population in general, which is actually meaningful. If you're not interested in any of the policies that we've talked about, then certainly um, you know, relaxing barriers to immigration could be one avenue uh, to pursue as you're trying to work on, deal with this issue of uh, population, potential population decline. Um, I think we're getting close here. Maybe we have time for one more. Um, Here's a question from Michael Martin. Would it, not, would it not help families and individuals to dramatically cut taxes across the board for them, allow school choice? Yes. Uh, if a family has four or more children, allow them not to pay income taxes ever again. I well, love him. <laughs> okay. <laughs> um, I think we can probably all in this group get behind uh, lowering taxes in yeah. various ways. <laughs> uh, Elizabeth is chiming in on that. From remote, from her remote location. Um, certainly, school choice is something that we have a big section on in our uh, Freeing American Families paper, and we talk about all sorts of ways so, I, of I approaching say, it. I'm, yes, school choice. I'm so glad you brought that up because I, I think you know, I, I have children that are a little bit older than all of you, and I went through the whole COVID school thing, and and. It, it was brutal. It was absolutely brutal. And I, I, you know, I'm, I'm, you should see me on Twitter. I'm still angry about it, right? But that was enormously difficult for families. And, you know, we have now three kids in private school. We did have them in the public school. And it's, in, it's incredibly burdensome. It's something we didn't plan for. And I think about, and we're so lucky because we can do it, but I think about all these families who are still, in, uh, despite going through what we went through in COVID, are still stuck in this. And that would be, if you could sort of design or go put your child in a school that, that you choose, that you want, that would be an enormous incentive to have children and, and not worry. Because I think today, especially among parents, education is very scary, um, particularly for parents who, who, who might be middle class um, and, and might not have the resources to, to choose the school that their children go to. So I know we don't have time, but I just yeah, had no, to just... I really make a statement on that that I think that's one of the, would be one of the biggest movers on this issue. Agree with that sentiment and that's something that's come up when I've spoken about fertility decline in other contexts. You know, if you speak about it in New York City, parents come up and say 
the school situation is so difficult here. Um, that, have, you t have you thought about how that might be affecting people's decisions to have kids? Yes. Um, so anyways, I, I agree with that as well. Um, thank you, everybody. Just want to thank our online audience. Definitely thank all of our contributors here in this conversation. This was really great, and I know that we could continue. I'm sorry that we didn't have a chance to get to all of the questions, but certainly we'll look for an opportunity to continue the conversation in various different ways and formats in the future as well. So appreciate everybody's time today.